Seated. This morning, we are, we're not going to continue in my long-term study here of the book of Romans. We had a, a break last week as we had a missionary here from Turkey, Ron and Jean Cootie. It was a part of our Empowered Conference um, last weekend. Great time. And then uh, next week, we have an individual that will be here speaking, Mark Bowman, a local missionary here. And so there's kind of a standalone message here. So I'm, I'm going to preach from a different topic than Romans this morning, and I'm going to do that based upon what we just went through here yesterday. We just had our men's summit here and about 200 guys converged from around the city here and, and uh, we had a great time uh, yesterday morning and early afternoon. Some really challenging words that were shared from God's truth to the men. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning is just kind of staying on a theme, what we could call maybe more exclusively devoted uh, to a men's theme on the surface, but I just Please hear me out here. This is for everybody, and you'll understand that in just a moment. But I'm hoping particularly that it will, man, I'm hoping it'll call you up as I'm praying and sensing that it's calling me up. Call you up to your rightful place. Call you to arms call you to put your focus on where your focus needs to be. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 10 through verse 17 of the 6th chapter. I'm going to read from the ESV. letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. This is coming down to the very conclusion of the letter. And so he's making a great summary statement here. Finalizing Ephesians, which by the way, Ephesians is, is just like right behind Romans in my mind. I mean, it is just like one of the pinnacles of the New Testament. It's called by many scholars. um, If, the New Testament is the Alps. Some say that Ephesians is the highest peak, but it's a powerful book. And he comes to the conclusion of this book, and he writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Obviously, long passage, and if you're accustomed to my style of preaching, not bragging on my style of preaching and all, it's just me. I, there's no way I could unpack all the truth in that in a couple of weeks. But I want to give some kind of overarching truths, hoping to get to just three words at the very end. But a good portion of this, I want to give you just some overarching truths as I pull out just some standout things here that Paul is saying. But here's the first truth. 
Here's the first undeniable reality pointed out in this text, and that is this. To be a Christian is to be a warrior. To be a Christian is to be a warrior. As a believer, you are following. That's what a Christian, probably the clearest word picture, simplest, concise description of a Christian is. A Christian is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He said that himself. Christ, ultimately, we know this is true. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ swung the death blow that took the enemy out. That ultimately won the war. And yet, Today, the battle still rages because the sentence has not yet been carried out. The execution of the sentence, it's coming, it's guaranteed. But in the meantime, there is still the battle that is raging. The skirmishes of the war continue. Now, we know that nothing evil, nothing vile, no sin will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven, into heaven's precincts. We know that when we get to heaven, we're a follower of Christ. When we get to heaven, there's going to be no rebellion against the rule of God in heaven. Amen? That's going to be completely ended. But here on this sphere This blue planet, there is a battle that is raging. And it's raging intensely. And we as believers, we as followers of the great conqueror, the great warrior, Jesus Christ, are put into the battle at the moment of salvation. The Christian is a warrior. Now, the Christian's great enemy, I want to talk about him for a minute. He is the, called in Scripture by many things, he's the accuser of the brethren. He is the evil one. I'm going to give you three other descriptions in a minute, but one of the things that he is called by Jesus is that he's the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. He, the devil, Jesus said, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, a lie is his native tongue. He is, he lies because he is a liar. Jesus is the truth. Capital T. And the truth and lie cannot cohabitate in peace, can they? They do not mix. In fact, they are not just satisfied to one to sit here on the table and the other to sit there on the table. They are diametrically, in the very essence of what they are, completely opposed to one another. And therefore, if the enemy is the God of this world, we're going to talk about that in a minute, is the prince of the power of the air here and he is the father of lies, and you as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a follower of him who is the truth, that means that you, in the moment of your salvation, you're engaged in the conflict. You cannot escape it. When you are rescued from the dominion of darkness by 
Christ and brought into the kingdom of the Son, you become an enemy of Satan. Just the reality. You become an opponent to his campaign because you're now in a campaign that is seeking to move the redemptive purposes of God for mankind forward. And he is on a campaign to push back the redemptive purposes of God. So there is not any situation in which they can coexist. They're in turmoil. They're in conflict. It's a real battle. You see, the enemy created, talking about Lucifer, son of the morning, the highest created being of God. Son of the morning decided he wanted to usurp the throne of God. And so he marshaled many of the angelic forces of heaven to come against the throne. But holy omnipotence cast him out and cast him down. But that one who was the son of the morning is now the prince of darkness. He is the evil one and his very being is continually seething in hatred against God. Which means that he hates God and anything God loves, he hates. And guess who God loves? He loves you. And if you're a believer, we've seen this for about a year in Romans, that if you're a believer, the moment you are justified, you are placed into Christ. I mean, in the real realm, the spiritual realm, that realm that is more real than the realm you're looking at. I know some of you in here don't believe that. I know the world tells us all the time there's no such thing. That's foolishness. The spiritual realm, that realm which is eternal, is more real than the one that we're seeing and feeling and touching right now. And in that realm, Satan, in his seething hatred and aggressive rebellion against God, he cannot reach the throne. I mean, he tried that once and he got the boot. So what's he trying to do now? What he's trying to do now, having been cast out and cast down, is to drag down every one of the children of God whom God loves, and because God loves us, he hates us. Everyone created in the image of God, everyone in Christ, because God loves the Christ in us, and Satan hates the Christ in us. And what that does, folks, is it just sets up the reality that we are in a battle. You cannot escape it. The Christian is in a battle. The Christian is to be a warrior. You may try to abdicate that, but you'll do so to your own demise. The devil is described by three terms. I'm many more than this, but I'm going to give you three really quickly here. Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul called him the God of this world. The God of this world. John 14.30, Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world. God of this world, prince of this world. Ephesians 2.2, Paul wrote that he's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Take those three titles. Now I want to show you how antagonistic, how Perfectly antithetic that is to the triune work of God. 
The triune God is God the Father. And what does that stand for? It stands for a God who rules sovereignly, a God who has a government set up over the universe. That's included in the concept of God, that he is the governing being of the universe. And Satan is called the God of this world. So that he is, as the small g God of this world, he has a government set up on this world. And that government is diametrically opposed to the government of God. Secondly, Jesus said that Satan is the prince of this world. Satan is the prince of this world. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the God that came in grace to move forward the campaign of grace. He is the Prince of Peace. That when you receive the grace of God, when the grace of God is given to you, you enter into, from a relationship of enmity with God, into a relationship of peace with God, united in perfect fellowship there with Him. But there's a Prince of this world that is against that peace. That is against the campaign of grace that the Prince of Peace is moving forward. And so the devil is directly fighting against God the Son's work in the campaign of redemption. And then thirdly, God the Holy Spirit. What does God the Holy Spirit do? God the Holy Spirit is the one who is the guide for humanity. He's the one that draws humanity to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that points out Christ and brings you to the realization that he is in fact who he said that he is. He's the one that wakens you up and regenerates you that new life aspect so that you can see and hear the truth, gives you the faith so that you can believe it. And then after you believe it, the Holy Spirit is the one who works in the sons and daughters of God toward righteousness and holiness. And what is the antithesis to that? It is the Spirit who is the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience. Do you see the absolutely direct contrast and fight of the enemy in his seething hatred against all of the campaign of God. All of that just to say, don't be naive, there is a real battle. It is a battle raging in the unseen realm with physical eyes. But Paul in 2 Corinthians admonishes, even commands us, look, don't fix your eyes on what is seen. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen, this other reality, it is eternal. And if you will think about that and base it upon the truth of Scripture, we see that everywhere, don't we, in Scripture? I mean, there is... Moments where God helps us to see the battle. Clearly, in scriptures like we're reading today, overt explanation by the great apostle Paul, there's a battle raging. But there are other moments. There are other moments. Let me give you one from the Old Testament. I give you two from the Old Testament. Elisha. And his servant, Elisha, the prophet of God, the successor of Elijah, held up in a town surrounded by mountains and the king after him because he had prophesied against him. And the king comes with his multiple forces and surrounds them in with their horses. And the servant looks out and is petrified and Elisha says, ah, 
Open your eyes, not these eyes. Open your spiritual eyes. God, open his spiritual eyes and help him to see the real truth. And the servant goes out and looks again. And they're covering the mountains around the enemy's horses are the fiery horses and chariots of the kingdom of God. Job. Job is such an incredible story in the opening chapter there because what happens in Job is that God does this for all of us. He didn't even do it for Job, but he did it for us. He says, I'm just going to pull the veil back between the seen and the unseen. I'm going to let you see behind into the spiritual realm about what's happening. And what we see when the veil is pulled back is a spiritual dynamic that is unfolding. The true story is about what is happening in the unseen realm where God is bragging on a man and he sets Satan up. If you study that, God takes every bit of the initiative. He asks the questions, Satan answers, and God throws out the hook and lures him in and sets it up so that he is going to glorify himself and in the end, advance and bless Job. Now, it wasn't an easy walk for Job, but there was a story going on behind the veil. That's the point. There is today. There is a story going on behind your life. There is a spiritual battle raging. There's a real enemy. And if you're a follower of Christ, he is against you. So don't deny the battle. Don't be afraid. I'm not asking you to fear, but respect the reality of the truth. Don't put your head in the sand and ignore it. Fix your eyes on the unseen. Be prepared to do battle. So every Christian is to be a warrior. And secondly, the fight is real. The fight is real. Paul says, we wrestle. That's what he said in that one of those verses there. We wrestle, not against flesh and blood, but listen what we wrestle against. The rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this great darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And let me just ask you a question. Does that sound like an intimidating enemy? Wow, there's two people in here that are honest. I mean, does that sound like an intimidating, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic Powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. <clears throat> Here's what it looks to me like. It looks like we have a powerful enemy, right? It looks to me like we have an experienced enemy. You see that there? It is against the cosmic powers over this what? Over this present darkness. Why is it dark? Because he knows what he's doing. He's good. He's been fighting it for thousands of years. As, as have his henchmen. He is experienced. He's powerful. He's experienced. And he's well-resourced. Well-resourced against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. <clears throat> and guess what? It's being fought on his home turf. That's always an advantage, right? Home court advantage. You and me by ourselves, in our ingenuity, in our creativity, in our power, in our will, in our efforts, we are absolutely no match for the enemy at any time. That's by ourselves. But we're not called to be by ourselves. So first two things general here, the Christian is to be a warrior and the, the fight is real. Oh, it's real. <clears throat> but here's what we have. We have a defeated foe. 
He's still fighting. The execution of his sentence has not been carried out, but he is ultimately defeated. Christ has swung the crushing blow. The seed of Genesis 3 has crushed the serpent's head. And the day is coming when that sentence will be carried out. Jesus made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him by the cross, it says in Colossians. And so, Paul here, in the battle that is still raging in Ephesians chapter 6, gives us two kind of overarching general directives, or let me say that differently, commands. Let me just show them to you. First verse there. Paul commanded us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That means this. You cannot fight this battle by yourself. And if you are just ignoring it and treating it indifferently, then in a sense that's exactly what you're trying to do. But you cannot fight the battle on your own. You have to fight it in the power of the Lord. The Lord is who? He's the victor. He's the one that has already won the day. He's the one that conquered the enemy in the moment that the enemy thought he had him beat. With the very nails being driven into the flesh of Christ, it was the nails in the coffin of the enemy. And when Jesus Christ stepped out of that tomb on the third day as he said, and he stepped over from death into life, he did exactly what Genesis 3 said. He crushed, he stepped right on the head of the serpent, and he crushed him. That was victory. Now what the enemy's in is kind of in the throes of death, you know. And I don't want to be gory here, but sometimes animals... When they die, kind of do it ugly. He's doing it ugly. But the victory has been won. But the battle is still raging. And the only way that you're going to be effective in the battle is you're going to have to fight that battle through the strength of the Lord, through the power of His might. And then secondly... Here's the second thing Paul commanded. General truth here. Put on the whole armor of God. Fight the battle in the strength and power of the Lord, number one, if you want to have any hope of being victorious. And number two, you need to put on the whole armor of God for that battle. Two main directives he gives us here. What does that mean, put on the whole armor of God? Let's just explore that for a minute. The whole armor of who? The whole armor of who? Of God. God's armor is perfect. God's armor is complete. God's armor lacks nothing. God's armor covers everything. You put on the whole armor of God, you are fully protected. There is no hole in your armor. There is no angle at which the enemy can position himself to shoot at your vulnerable spot if you put on the whole armor of God. But if you don't, you have vulnerable spots. And here's what the enemy's doing. He's studying you. He's watching. He knows you. He's good at what he does. He's been doing it a long time. He's accurate. And he knows how to bring it right to your point of weakness. And so you need not three of the five aspects of God's armor and to really polish them up and say, man, I'm going to really put these on tight, but I really don't want to put these two on because they're going to affect my lifestyle too much. So I'm going to leave those sitting aside. Look, you are leaving yourself open if you do that. And what is the strength of the chain? It's only as strong as what? It's weakest link. It's weakest link. You need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the enemy. So here's a question. I don't have time. I'm not my intent. We're not going to look at each one of these pieces that take 
me a long time to do, but what is the armor of God? I don't mean breastplate of righteousness, kind of those symbols that we have in our mind, you know, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel. What is, though, in its essence, what is the armor of God? And what does it mean to put it on? See, I, I don't think it means this. And I'm, I'm not saying this is a bad thing to do, but I'm just saying this is not, I don't think, applying all of the, all of the truth of the, of the command here. I don't think it means that you should get up in the morning and that you say, okay, I put on the breastplate of righteousness now and I put on the belt of truth. I, mean, I think it's great to pray like that and be conscious of that. But practically speaking, how do you put on the armor of God? Get it fitted where it needs to go so that it protects. And here is just one word I want to give you related to that to try to explain what I am absolutely convinced the armor of God is. The word is character. A little more specifically than that, the armor of God is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the armor of God so that the components of the armor is the righteousness of Christ, is the truth of Christ, is the good news that Christ came to share. It's the salvation that Christ brings. You see, the armor that helps to protect you against the attacks of the enemy is nothing other than the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's true because it's the character of Jesus Christ that defeated the enemy. It's the character of Jesus Christ that was tempted in every way, yet was what? Without sin. So the armor is really the descriptive pieces of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are in order to be victorious in the battle that we most assuredly are in as Christians, that we must be putting on the character of Jesus Christ. We must be putting on his integrity, putting on his righteousness, putting on his truth, protecting our minds with the reality and and security of our salvation, taking up the shield of faith in Christ when the enemy tries to shoot doubts, fiery darts of doubt at us to undermine our faith. We hold up the shield of faith in Christ. You see, this is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ given in descriptive form to paint a picture that Jesus Christ in his character is complete. It is all that you need to protect yourself from the attacks of the enemy. It is fully, comprehensively perfect. And as you put it all on the whole armor, then you are able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. Now, what does that mean, to stand? You know, just take the battle illustration here vernacular in which this is given. What you need in a battle is you need good footing. You need to stand. You're in an attack. You're in hand-to-hand combat. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? You'd stumble and trip, and that makes you vulnerable to be run through. You got to stand firm. You got to be in a posture of attack and defense. You got to be on your feet, grounded, good footing, and what helps you to stay standing is the armor so that when the enemy rushes in like a flood, you can withstand. You can stand and withstand. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you put on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the only one that has ever stood against the enemy. And now he is, through his character, helping others stand against the enemy in victory. That's what I believe the armor is in its total understanding. It's really the character of Jesus Christ. 
Now I want to show you this. Don't miss this connection. I believe that this is God-breathed right here. I believe that this is the divinely inspired Word of God that just like the Scripture says that God breathed into the men, the 40-some men that wrote down the different components of this one book that we call the very Word of God. And God so superintended that process in that divine inspiration that although it was uniquely communicated through a variety of different personalities, exactly what God wanted to be said was said. He didn't dictate it. He inspired it. He breathed it. And that truth came out in a perfect form through the pen of the divinely inspired authors. Breathed it. And so, this word then, this word here, this details of this word are are intentional. The structure is intentional. The order is intentional. And what is the order? You have all of the various components of the armor that are the defensive pieces and then at the very end, in the end of verse 17, comes the one offensive piece. And so the flow is this. You put on those components of the armor, the helmet and the breastplate and the belt and the gird the loins and the shoes and when you've got it all on, then you take up the sword of the Spirit. So here's what I believe that this is telling us. I believe, I'll state this in a positive way and then in the negative way to make it uh, very clear. I believe that it is, it is the followers of Christ that truly are putting on the whole armor, that are taking on the character of Christ. I don't mean you've got it all perfectly figured out, but you are really diligently working at putting on the whole armor of God. And as the Spirit of God reveals a part of the character of Christ where your life needs to line up to it, and you're putting that on, it's those followers of Christ that are going to be able to pick up the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and use it effectively in battle. Because you first put on the armor, and then you pick up the sword. And the negative way to say that, that you are not going to be effective in yielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, if you are not putting on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not have the power of the Spirit in your sword arm if you are not putting on the character of Jesus Christ. It is the character of Christ and then the sword in the hand of the one carrying the character of Christ that the sword of the Spirit is so powerful. Oh, what an incredible, applicational piece that is for us as believers. Let me just come to your door, men, husbands, dads, future husbands and dads. Here's what that means. Just follow this logical thought process here. How desperately does your wife and your kids or your grandkids or those that are around you that really you're an influential component of their life, how desperately do they need you to give them, to wield for them the truth of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It is imperative. It is imperative that they have, that my kids, as they are young and as they're growing, that they have 
A father that is yielding the sword of the Spirit because the enemy is against them just like he's against me. And they are not equipped yet to do that. And so they need a leader. They need a father who is overseeing that process and who takes the responsibility to be the one that yields the sword. And so then take it to the next step. If I am not putting on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, my sword arm is impotent. I'm not going to yield that effectively, powerfully, like they need it to be yielded for them so that I won't be for them what they so desperately need and what God intended me as a father and a leader over them to be. Same thing is true of your wife. My wife needs me, not because I am any better or any more valuable to God than she is not in any way. I'm Quite frankly, I'm pretty sure it's the other way around. But the fact of the matter is she needs me to be the leader in that home that picks up the sword of the spirit for the family and helps yield that for the family. And your wife needs that. And you, listen, follower of Christ, man, you can't shirk that. You might think you are, but you're going to be called on it. You're going to be called up to it. You're not going to have any answer when you stand before God on the final day and say, well, you know, my wife had more time to do that than me. You know, the judge of all the earth who always does right is not going to say, oh, okay, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be excused. I'm going to, I'm going to just write just slip. You're excused on that. No. He's going to hold you to the word. Ephesians chapter 5, right before this passage. I mean, the chapter leading into this passage, it is the model of the home and the husband and the wife and the children. And the husband is instructed in that passage of his role in the home to be the sacrificial lover and the spiritual leader of the home, washing the wife with water through the what? Through the what? Through the word. Through the word. That you are to help your wife become All that God wants her to be, men, you're to help her to become holy. How are you going to do that? By effectively yielding the sword of the Spirit. How are you going to effectively yield the sword of the Spirit? You're going to have to have the character of Christ, the whole armor of God on. Because if you don't have the whole armor of God on, your sword arm is going to be impotent and you're not going to yield it effectively. Oh, what a, what a sobering calling. What a sobering calling. It's not fatalistic. I mean, God is not, you know, maybe a worn out expression, but God's not going to ever call you to do something. He's not going to equip you to do. It's not an, imp- I don't care how, f- how far back you feel you are. Just say, right now, I'm going to start doing what I know is my responsibility to do. God, help me to do it. And you do what you can, and he'll do what you can't. He's based his character upon it. He's given you a charge, and he is not going to fail to hold up his end of the charge. But you have got to engage. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really not mad at anybody at all. I'm just kind of passionate here. You might be doing awesome in this. Praise God if you are out of, out of boy, out of man. But just, I'm just calling us up. I'm calling us up. We got to do this, man. We got to do this. We got to do it for not only our families, but 
heard a statistic yesterday. I think it was 70, either 72 or 78 percent of the homes in America don't have two parents. Good majority of those are without a dad. That means there's a lot of kids running around here that has nobody in their home that's fulfilling this call. And they need some surrogate fathers, spiritual fathers. I'm, I'm just about run out of road here. I got a lot more to say too, doggone it. Let's see here. Let me just draw you to the last three words that I want to focus on. Those are all general overarching truths. Now I want to just show you one specific call. This is what rings out in the passage. I'm convinced of it. All leads up to this. In the 17th verse, Paul gives this call, and I will change that and say, God, through Paul, gives this call, and the call is this. Take up the sword. Take up the sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take it up. You've got to have it in the battle. Take it up. Those under your influence desperately need you to take it up. And what is that sword? Let me just give you a couple truths about it. It's a noble sword. It's a noble sword. Whose sword is it? It's the sword of the Spirit. He's God. It's God's sword. It's a noble sword. This is a divine sword that we're talking about. This sword had a very good genesis. This sword was forged in the mind of omniscience. That means it's made just how it needs to be made. Right here. This sword was forged with the hands of omnipotence. That means it was forged perfectly with perfect skill, with perfect power. This sword was forged by the Creator. Think about that. It was forged by the Creator. The Creator who made the angelic beings that revolted and whom he cast out and cast down. And he made a sword. He made a sword. The creator who fashioned them, fashioned a sword that works against them. And the creator who fashioned you, fashioned a sword that fits your hand perfectly. Youth, it fits your hand. Middle-aged, it fits your hand. Elderly, it fits your hand because it was fashioned by the Creator. It's a noble sword. Secondly, it's a singular sword. Do you just notice that here? There's just one offensive weapon. That speaks to its perfection and to your focus. It's not take the sword of the Spirit and the battle axe. It's not take the sword and the dagger or the sword and the spear. No, it's just take up the sword. This is what you need right here offensively. 
You don't need to add the pop psychology of the world to this. You need this right here. This is what is effective. This is what's been fashioned for the spiritual battle. Any ingenuity of man, creativity of man, trying to figure out how to give you something to fight there, that's ridiculous. You can't even see that realm. It had to be fashioned by the God who controls that realm. So this is the singular sword that you need. This is your one offensive weapon. And then it's a sharp sword. It's a sharp sword. Look how keen the edge is. Sharpened by the spirit of the living God. The one who inspired the word. That's his sharpening. The one who spoke it into being. He put the keenest edge on that sword. Christian, can you not testify to that right here? Think about how the Spirit of God used his sword in your life when he brought you to Christ. Think of how penetrating that sword was when it went right to the very core of your being and laid you bare there before God in your sin. That's what the sword in the hands of the Spirit does. Oh, how keen that edge is and how effective he yields it. I got to read you this. Listen to Charles Haddon Spurgeon some few hundred years ago talk about that sword and the Spirit using that sword to the believer. That sword pursued you and pierced you in the secrets of your soul and made you believe and made you bleed in 1,000 places as it did its cutting work. At last you were cut to the heart, and, in the exec- and when the execution was done, there was a death. I mean, that's the story, right? The sword brings you to the death, to the end of yourself, The Spirit of God using the truth of God has to bring you to the point of your own demise, the recognition of your own death so that it actually slays you. That wound was deadly and no one but he that killed could make you alive, but he did make you alive. Now listen to this. Then after you were made alive, that very same word that slayed you was used to begin to slay your sins. The trappings of death in your life begin to slay them in the hands of the Spirit and Take them out of your life. Still that process is going on. How effective is the Spirit's sword in His hands? The sword of the Spirit is so sharp and so used in His hands that it can slay the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three sins are the descriptive, encompassing statements that cover every sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the sword of the Spirit in the hands of the Spirit can go to work in our lives and can effectively slay those enemies in us. And nothing else can do that. So the sword of the Spirit in the hands of the Spirit as you take it up will vanquish those foes. But here's the reality now. It's the sword of the Spirit, but it's to become ours. The sword of the Spirit, He wants us to take it up and own it. Just think about the honor there. 
the privilege there. This is the spirit of the living God who for thousands of years has been yielding this great sword and slaying the works of the enemy. And he says to you as a follower of Christ, I want you to take my sword. I want you to take it up. I want you to take it as one of your components of your warfare. I want you to take it up as your own. So how do you do that? And by the way, in the Greek, the word take it up, take, is a continuous word. It means Keep on taking it up. So how do you do that? I'm just going to close with these three statements. You take it up by believing it, first of all. You got to believe it. You've got to believe all of it. You have to believe that it's the divinely inspired word of God, that it's everything that you need right here, that the whole armor of God that will help you to win effectively against the enemy. You have to believe that it's true. Because without that deep conviction, you're not going to make it your own. You've got to believe that it's true. And then secondly, you have to study it. If you really believe that it is what it is, this is actually a letter written from the God, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God of the universe, right to you. It's God's letter to you. And in that letter, he has given you a treasure house. He has given you the one weapon that you need in your great battle. Would you not then say, man, I got to take this up and study it. I got to dig deep into this. I got to learn this use right here. And here's what I'm convinced, ladies and gentlemen. I'm convinced that the deeper you dig, the purer the gold gets. The more precious it becomes. And then thirdly, not only are you to believe it, to take it up, not only are you to study it, but thirdly, you could say this a couple of ways. You could say you've got to apply it. Or you've got to use it according to its purpose. And what is the purpose of the Word of God? It's not for you. Listen, this should not be your posture to the Word of God. It should not be a religious, pious posture that says, I've got to spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day, at least five days a week, check it off my little duty. No. That's not the way it works. This Word was given by God to change your life. You are to take it up in faith, believing it to be what it is. You are to study it deeply so that you can learn its use and then you are to apply it diligently. Use it for what it's meant to be used for so that what you do is you, in greater ways, put on more of the character of Christ. And then the sword becomes more effective in your hands and you become more of a threat in the battle. Would you please stand? I want to close this in a word of prayer here. But I want to do this. I do believe, I believe that God is speaking to a lot of people right here this morning. I know he's speaking to me. And I'm asking you, if he's talking to you about the challenge here, and you want to just say, God, I need, I need you to help me to do what I've been called to do today by your word. I need you to help me to put on the character of Christ, the whole armor of God. I haven't been diligent in that like I should. I need to do that. And my, my family desperately needs me to do that. And then I need to take up the sword of the Spirit. And you want to be prayed for for that. You just come up. I'll pray over you. Some of our other leaders here will just come put a hand on you. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but we want to, I want to just pray. I want to pray over you that God's Spirit would help you do what He's calling you to do. You come.
as we sing. Sure.